Hey honeys, this is your host Marissa. Welcome to the Honey Health and Wellness Podcast. Get ready to unlock your full potential as I dive into all things health, wellness, spirituality, and self-development. I'm so glad you're here. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Um, Today, I have a very exciting guest. I have Dr. Tim Crow. So, Dr. Tim, you are an educator. You have your master's in, uh, is it nutrition and dietetics? Is that correct? That's right. So, my background is is partly a clinical dietitian, but most of my career has been in in the area of research at at a university. So, big disclaimer, I'm an academic research nerd. So, what you'll be hearing today is we mostly informed by evidence, um, but trying to make it as practical as possible. So, that's my career. I I embrace being a, a scientific nerd. But uh, in the area of yes, I love and that, and that's why that. that's why I wanted to have you on. Yeah, because you do um, your whole focus is on evidence based um, information, and I think uh, you know with the internet and with you know all the information that is accessible to people out there, I think it's becoming increasingly more important to have people at the forefront of their field talking from an evidence-based perspective because there's just like a lot of junk out there isn't there <laughs> there is it, keep, it keeps you busy but i mean as as the years have gone on i don't hold on to evidence as tightly acknowledging we don't have perfect evidence for everything and personal experience uh is valid as well if someone has a particular uh allergy or, or True. food then that's valid for them but you know for as far as general recommendations mm-hmm. certainly stick with what the evidence says and acknowledge when the evidence is not that strong yeah. as well yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the topics that I want to cover with you today are, um, I would say they're heavily, maybe debated, it's not the exact right word, but there's a lot of um, different articles out there, different yeah. takes on um, the topics that I want to t- chat to you about. Um, you know, there's endless information on a lot of them, like I really want to get into gut health with, gut health with you. Um, mm, yeah. There's so many different takes on that. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, thank you for coming on, and I guess we should just get right into it. Um, And speaking of gut health, I think maybe let's get that one, kind of chatting about that one to begin with, because um, I guess, like, to talk about my personal experience a little bit, I started getting really into nutrition after I struggled with a lot of skin issues, and I'm not sure why I always... I didn't dismiss nutrition, but I always just thought like there was a medication or a supplement that could, you know, override not really looking at your nutrition, Um, which, you know, I think a lot of people maybe think that way. They think nutrition is like the second tier to your, um, you know, they just want kind of like a quick fix. So, yeah, I started getting really into nutrition from that and with with that I started learning a lot about gut health because I figured out that has a lot to do with, skin health um but yeah if you could give a little bit of a yeah yeah if you could give a bit of a background of the importance of maintaining a healthy gut um and then I do want to chat about prebiotics and probiotics with you because um yeah there's a lot of um you know misinformation out there about that so yeah Okay. So, I mean, the gut health is what I describe as the hottest of of biggest hot topics at the moment. There's a huge amount of research coming out Mm -hmm. about it. So, a little bit of orientation. You have about 100 trillion bacteria and viruses and protozoa Mm -hmm. in your gut, and they weigh about one and a half to two kilograms, which is just an amazing stat. And they're not benign Mm. Freeloaders, they have a big impact upon our health. They're involved in digestion of food, production yeah. of certain vitamins and um, metabolism of amino acids. 
production of neurotransmitters, mm-hmm. a whole range of factors are related to these, these gut bacteria. So as we learn more about the influence mm-hmm. of our gut in our overall health, we, we learn more about dietary things that can then change that. So it's not just what happens in your gut. It can affect your mental health. Mm-hmm. It can affect your immune system. It can affect inflammation, blood sugars, all of that can be traced back to at least the gut having a role to play. It's not the master organ that does everything, but it's certainly an important factor to acknowledge. So having a healthy mix of bacteria or healthy diversity of bacteria is a marker for good gut health, but everyone's bacterial fingerprint will be different. So, but it's also very changeable. Mm -hmm. It's one of the biggest factors within 24 hours. If you're following a junk food diet and you start eating healthy within 24 hours, you can see changes in your gut bacteria. It's that rapid. So it has a big impact immediately. That's fascinating. That's really fascinating. I mean, while I have you on talking about the gut and how it can change your, um, it can impact your mental health and all of that, I did want to ask you about, you know, what, how how big is the impact of our food on our mental health? Like, you know, I think there was a study I read the other day that were talking about the impact of junk food and processed yes. oils and all of that and its link with depression and anxiety. Yes. And, right. yeah. uh, you know, it seems almost too simple for it to be true, but it also makes so much sense. Like, of course, that could be the case. So what's your take on, you know, food and our, our mood? So until about five or 10 years ago, we knew that at least people with depression and low mood had poor, worse diets. But could you say, is it because Mm -hmm. they were depressed that they they were eating poorly or did that poor diet at least exacerbate depression? And then um, a huge study came out about six years ago called the SMILE study. It was actually done by Professor Felice Jacker here in Melbourne, showing that at least with following a Mediterranean-style diet in a randomized control trial, you could see dramatic improvements in mental health. And there's been at least four studies since then showing similar effects where people make dietary changes, they see an improvement in their health Mm -hmm. and and in their mood and in their mental health. And the sorts of dietary changes are really not too different to what you'd recommend for healthy eating. You know, pretty much think Mediterranean-style diet, think fruits, vegetables, um, high-fiber grains, cereals, um, legumes, mm-hmm. not a lot of overly processed food. Nothing, it's not brain surgery, but that can have an impact upon your gut health and improve your mental health. So eating well, even with a low mood, can have an impact upon your mental health, as well as other things a person should be doing. And that's obviously going to be counselling, medication if appropriate. You know, diet is not a, a panacea, but it certainly has an impact in improving mm-hmm. your mood. And the gut is thought to be one of the mediators that gives this favorable benefit when you make these dietary changes. Right. So do you think that it's the the nutrition benefit that you get from eating healthy that improves the mental health? Or is it also the fact that it, you know, alters your gut microbiome and that then affects your mental health? Or is it kind of a combination of both? It's, it's a combination. You get in with better better diet, you get more more nutrients, which will be of benefit. You get an anti-inflammatory mm-hmm. effect, but also you see changes in your gut bacteria, and that gut bacteria can then communicate to mm-hmm. the brain. It's called the gut-brain axis. That can certainly mm-hmm. um, you can certainly see a change in neurotransmitter production. So it's all related, and even our gut bacteria is involved in um, chronic inflammation. And inflammation lies at the heart as well of, of depression. So it's all coming back to the right. gut foods that you eat, and that's where the benefits. That's seem really to interesting. That inflammation. Yeah, sorry to interrupt the thing. Okay. <laughs> the internet keeps like cutting out. It's like 
um, just adding to our technical difficulties today. Um, but I, that's a really interesting point that you bring up about inflammation and depression. I, I didn't know that. So what aspect um, of inflammation and where does the inflammation come about that impacts um, depression? So if you look at actually most chronic diseases, call it type 2 diabetes, um, heart disease, many forms of cancer, there is chronic inflammation that lies at the heart of it. So, so acute inflammation is a good thing. If mm. you take your leg or you cut, cut yourself, that redness and pain and soreness is acute inflammation. That's a good thing and it dies down. But when mm-hmm. it sticks around for months and years, that's a bad thing. So that's, can, that's a hyperactivation of our immune system. Uh, you see a change in hormonal mm-hmm. profiles and um, use of t- certain metabolites. When that's sticking around for a long time, that's doing damage, and it's certainly linked with depression, but as well as all those other conditions. What is an anti-inflammatory diet? Well, mm. there is no one magical food that's going to cure inflammation, but it's in the line of a Mediterranean-style diet that as a whole dietary pattern yep. can certainly lower that inflammation. And again, that's the sort of diet that you see improvements in mental health, you see improvements in a lower risk mm-hmm. of type 2 diabetes and cancer and so on. So despite the complexity of the of the gut microbiome and the research, the dietary advice is not that complex. It's not that complex. It's pretty yeah, much right. with a few tweaks. But the advantage is it gives you a strong reason to make those changes because of the sorts of health benefits you could expect to get from that. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess in terms of if we keep thinking about the inflammation aspect in our gut health, what's the, um, you know, what's the correlation with your, with skin issues? So for example, myself, acne or dealing with eczema or psoriasis. So again, would you just be thinking about, you know, utilizing nutrition to lower the inflammation to then lower, you know, any skin issues? But also, how how do skin issues arise from poor gut health? So, like, what exactly is happening in the gut when this yeah. inflammation arises? Like, does is there changes to our gut lining, or you know, th- things like that? So, excellent question. So, all of those conditions you mentioned, be it acne or or eczema, which is um, and the most common form is atopic dermatitis, they at at its heart are inflammatory conditions. So, there's other things going on that. Mm-hmm is a core part of it. There is a link between our gut and our skin. So while we know a reasonable amount about our gut microbiome, we know very little about our skin microbiome. But there are changes in the skin microbiome when during it with acne, particularly one species of mm-hmm. bacteria called the um, Propobacterium acne. And you see high levels mm-hmm. of that in people with acne, particularly at the, uh, the hair follicle. And that's where the inflammation and infection is occurring. But you also see bacterial changes in eczema. There has been a a few studies done with probiotics, more so in eczema, showing a benefit of probiotics orally in reducing eczema. Mm -hmm. And only a very small number, but showing an indication of a benefit that probiotics in acne may be one factor help control acne as well. And that is occurring Mm -hmm. in gut which then interacts with our skin through mechanisms. We really don't know how it, how it does it, but it does interact. And then you're seeing yeah. an improvement in these conditions. And inflammation is one of them. So it's good news about probiotics in these conditions. Typically, it's a lactobacillus uh, genus that comes okay. up being the most po- um, um, potent one. And you'll find that mostly in, in yogurt yeah. and dairy-based um, probiotic fermented foods. 
So that's really interesting. And then I guess then what's the difference between like your prebiotics and your probiotics? Because I think a lot of people maybe self-prescribe these types of uh, supplements, which yeah. I probably have done so in the past. Like you think, oh, it won't do me any harm and they mm-hmm. and they take it. But I, yeah. I'm curious, like is there, would there be a, um, could you potentially maybe doing a little bit of damage if you're miss, you know, if you're taking either a prebiotic or a probiotic where your body is really maybe yeah. not in need of that? So prebiotics I describe as being like food for our bacteria. They ferment the prebiotics and, and they, mm-hmm. the diversity of them changes and they produce a range of beneficial compounds. The thing about prebiotics is pretty much every fruit, vegetable, whole grain, legume you can think of will contain prebiotics and there's a whole huge family of them. They're sort of like dietary fiber mm-hmm. but with a few extra benefits. So while you can buy prebiotic supplements and typically they'll be something like inulin or a fractan, mm-hmm. diversity of plant-based foods will give you a load of prebiotics because there's so many chemicals in these foods that actually act like a prebiotic. So positive dietary changes again, will change your bacteria. And that's one of the mechanisms it does that. Whereas probiotics are a bit different. Mm -hmm. And with probiotics, the definition is it's a a beneficial microbe that when you ingest it, it has a a favorable health benefit. There's a tendency for people just to grab a probiotic off the shelf and they're not all the same. If you take one, you need to know what's in it, what strain, what dose, and what evidence is that for a condition you're taking it for. So like for a general health and well-being, mm-hmm. probably not that much benefit for you. But if you're taking it for acne, yeah. if you're taking it for IBS, if you're taking it for any condition, what species of bacteria is there evidence for? And they're the ones that you, that mm. you go for. And um, also the dose. Right, that's, the, yeah. The more the better, but it's actually the bacterial species that matters, not so much the amount of just total bacteria in there. That's so interesting. Yeah, that's a really great, great information because it does drive that point back home of, you know, it is worth getting some professional advice, figuring out, you know, what your body really needs as opposed to kind of self, uh, you know, I don't, would I say self-prescribing? You don't really have to prescribe it, but, you know, just taking yeah. any medication. Yeah. Well, <laughs> Fine. Probiotics are incredibly, um, incredibly safe, but you could spend a lot of money for not much benefit. And the other thing, of course, is fermented food. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's into fermented foods for their gut health. This is me speaking about yeah. the evidence. Unfortunately, as much as you may enjoy kimchi and sauerkraut and kombucha, the evidence for them as far as gut health is pretty weak only because you don't know what bacteria is in them and at what levels. So most of the evidence for fermented right. food comes from probiotic fermented food. So there'll be a whole range of yogurts that will be labelled as probiotics. So you want a fermented food that is there's mm-hmm. probiotic on it and it can tell you what species okay. of bacteria are present. Enjoy sauerkraut, enjoy kimchi, okay. enjoy kombucha, but just having it on its own may not be doing much for your gut health if you don't know what's in it. Mm-hmm evidence is that that manufacturer has produced for that product right super interesting that's that's very good information to know and i guess that does make sense um i think what i what i want to ask you about on this topic is um what's your take on multivitamins because um i've heard that they're kind of useless a multivitamin is useless and that you know you need to i, I don't know like I've, I've heard that essentially it's you know what you're getting in a multivitamin, you're getting like really minimal doses of 
you know, vitamins that A, you may not necessarily need and B, they're not in a high enough strength to do you any good? Like, is it kind of just something that is like this placebo thing? Like, oh, I'm taking a multivitamin. (laughs) Probably what you've said is is mostly true. Now, some years ago, I would say that nobody needs a multivitamin. You can get everything you need from from food. But the thing is, we don't have perfect diets. So Mm -hmm. I look at multivitamins as a nice little insurance policy. It gives you a bit of everything, but not too much of anything. But that's mm-hmm. different, for example, if mm-hmm. like a woman planning pregnancy or during pregnancy, there's a strong case of folic acid, vitamin D, um, iron, iodine. If you have a diagnosed deficiency, if you're iron deficient, they are cases where you want to take particular nutrients. But a multivitamin probably isn't going to do you much much benefit. It's not going to do you much harm. I treat yeah. it more as an insurance policy. But if you're taking it as insurance policy, maybe you should say, well, maybe I should just eat a bit better mm-hmm. and that would have a lot whole of other Yeah. <laughs> because when you eat food, you don't yeah. just get yeah, no, that's a, yeah. so you get prebiotics in food as well. So that has other benefits. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a really good point because I think, you know, in terms of even when people look at their health from a more holistic perspective and they try to, um, you know, implement more, um, you know, nutrients and supplements and they try to take a bit more of a kind of natural approach to their health. I think a lot of the time people still take this kind of one pill to fix everything um, approach to things. So it's good to kind of debunk some of these um, topics so that people can kind of guide their, I guess, their money and what they're taking in a bit more of a kind of logical way. Um, You can spend a lot of money on some of these products. So is it it needed? And the answer is Oh, absolutely. And I think it's such a booming industry. You know, people think, I don't know, you know, people have a different supplement for everything. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, the point is it's good to know what you're taking and why you're taking it, I guess. Um, On the topic of inflammation, I wanted to get into um, understanding sugars and the different types of sugars. Um, From my understanding, I guess, again, relating it to skin because that's really all I understand from what I've learned my kind of nutrition needs based on. Um, Can nutrition, uh, can sugar inflammation, impact your inflammation can it cause inflammation um what are the benefits well there's really no benefits from sugar so is there (laughs) Um, yeah exactly you need lots of energy that's it's a cheap source of energy Um, so with with sugar uh, just to get some definitions about half of the sugar the average australian eat each day is is naturally present in food that's that's in whole fruit and in So that's going to be lactose and, and fructose and a few others. The other half is added, and that's not just soft drinks. That's been added to mm-hmm. not not even sweet food, but also sa- a lot of savoury food sources and things like that have add extra sugar in them. So half of our sugar is actually added. Metabolically, there's actually not a big difference between whether it's added or naturally present in food because it's all digested and becomes right. the same level of, of nutrients. Where the issue with added sugar is that typically mm-hmm. it's added to food that's nutritionally poorer or worse than um, natural food mm-hmm. uh, that, that, that isn't highly processed. And when you add sugar, you make it what's called hyperpalatable, meaning it tastes good. Right. More of it. So mm-hmm. there's no direct links between sugar causing weight gain outside of the extra calories it adds to your diet. So this is not saying it's a health food Mm -hmm. or has no health effects. The the harm is actually from just the amount of food you eat that's high in sugar. That causes weight gain. Right. Coming from soft drinks and then with weight gain you get type 2 diabetes, many forms of cancer, CVD, 
and so on. And so the list goes on. So while yep. having some sugar is okay, uh, diets high in added sugar also are more likely to be uh, nutritionally poor. And that's where you see higher inflammation and other conditions. But there's not a strong link to say why a bit of added sugar, which is just a glucose and a fructose molecule joined together, which is no different to if you eat it from fruit mm -hmm. or get it from other foods, why that should do anything different to your body. It's the diet that's high in sugar mm -hmm. overall that's the issue, not the actual sugar itself. So it's a long way of saying that we need to eat less sugar. But metabolically, there's no yeah, so, reason why it should be doing all of these things. So I'm not exonerating it. You're saying so that's a really good, yeah. Yeah, that's a, it's a really good point that you make that, you know, the distinction between a natural sugar and a processed sugar, it all gets kind of metabolized in the same way. Obviously, one would have maybe more health benefits than the other. Of that makes course. complete yes. sense. But Absolutely. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, people will look at maybe say like an acai bowl or a health food bar. And if you look at the back of the health food bar, there's like nearly like 15 grams of sugar, maybe just from like dates or maybe just from the banana and the other fruits in the acai bowl and yes. the muesli and all of that. So Which I think it's important, I would say, for people to, yeah, go for it. Oh, no, keep going. You're completely right. They're, they are they are good sugars to have, what, you, what you're pointing mm. out there, because they're naturally present in the whole Yeah. Exactly. So they're like naturally present, but I guess, isn't there so, isn't it like 25 grams of sugar per day that is like recommended in the average adult diet? Is that the correct, um, the correct amount around, so we, around about that? We have the WHO recommend that people eat no more than mm -hmm. 50 grams of added sugar per day, ideally at down to 25. Oh, okay. That's not sugar found in milk. That's not sugar found in fruit. Mm -hmm. It's what's called free sugar yep. so very different and what you good thing you mentioned fruit uh, fruit has been demonized so much because of the anti-sugar movement over many years and yet when you look at the research to do with whole fruit yeah those people who eat more whole fruit have controlled their body weight better and potentially have lower body weights because of it because there's loads of other nutrients mm -hmm. and this is my issue with the whole sugar is poison and toxic we eat too much of it but yeah. that message, we say, oh, we mm -hmm. shouldn't have the Asahi bowl because it's got some dates and banana in it. And look at all that sugar. Well, that's doing you a lot mm -hmm. of good because of the other nutrients. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think, um, yeah, that's really why I wanted to kind of get your opinion on it because people, um, you know, they do these no sugar diets and then you think, okay, well, hang on. So that means that I can't have any fruit. That means that I can't have any um you know, like dates, sultanas, and obviously I would say maybe dried fruit is particularly higher in sugar and you're not getting necessarily the health benefits. So maybe I guess the point is around picking what, yes. what sugar is going to give you some sort of benefit really. Yeah, definitely. And if it's coming from whole fruit, it's going to be doing you um, the world of good. And the problem with the whole anti-sugar movement was that yeah. we were advised to cut out sugar, but here's some natural rice malt syrup you can use in its place, which is just pure sugar. So there are yeah. Yeah. all the same to our body. It's just there's better sources of sugar than others. A banana is 100 times better than rice malt syrup, okay? They're both natural, but... The yeah, yeah. For you. Absolutely.
Yeah, and that's something I wanted to ask you about. So when people are reading food labels, if they're to turn around um, and look at like a muesli bar or some cereals and they're trying to differentiate if there is sugar in their product, what are some kind of other names for sugar out there? So like you mentioned, there's rice malt syrup, um, there's heaps of different artificial sweeteners. So what are some that you would say most common and to you know, look out for? Yes, I'll give you a couple of names. And and on that, when you look at our labelling laws for sugar, only specify the total amount of sugar. It doesn't differentiate between added and naturally present. Whereas there's a push that labelling of food should, mm-hmm. um, should sugar should be divided into what's naturally present in the food and what's been added to the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. But until that happens, you need to look at the ingredient list, and there's a whole bunch of different names for sugar. Here's a here's a couple of them. Um, could be beet sugar, barley okay. malt, fructose, fruit juice, molasses, corn syrup, invert sugar, malt, lactose. There's about 60 different names for what could be considered added sugar in food. How do you navigate all of that? Well, the best mm. of all would be that if the food is fairly minimally processed and hasn't had a lot of ingredients added to it, it likely will be low in added sugar. But if you buy a, a can of natural right. peaches, added uh, candied natural juice, every gram of sugar in that will be naturally present in that food to start with. Okay. different to fruit juice, even though okay. it, it seems like it's got a lot of sugar yeah. present. Yeah. Okay. That's very interesting. Yeah. it's um, There's a lot of benefit in understanding how to kind of read a food label, I think, because, you know, people look at the advertising and they think, yeah, that looks good. And then you flip yeah. it around. And then if you kind of understand what's happening with the ingredients, you're like, oh, Maybe not so much. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it is added to, like, everything. It, it is, and that's our biggest problem, that, it, that the sugar is not just in soft drink and confectionery. It's added in a lot of savoury food. So if you look at the ingredient list, if you're mm. seeing uh, one of those forms of sugar in the top three, then that's a lot of added sugar in that food. If it's not mm-hmm. from whole fruit or if it's not coming from milk, they're perfectly fine. So milk and yes. whole fruit is half of our sugar each day and and. As long as you're okay with dairy mm-hmm. foods, dairy foods are perfectly healthy to have and whole fruit is perfectly healthy mm-hmm. to have and there's no issue with the sugar in them. Yeah. Yeah. And the way the food label works is it's the most percentage the ingredient is written um, from its most present to its least present. So that even though they right. might be like they might advertise like vitamin B12 in your food, it might be like the last ingredient it and it's like this much of it. So. Exactly. Like micro- <laughs> yeah. you need. But a lot yeah. of processed food, there'll be a form of sugar present in the first three that's going to be a high sugar food. So when you look at the label, it tells you how much sugar mm-hmm. is in it. If it's a lot and you're seeing one of these ingredients high up in the list, that's going to be a, a marker for a fairly highly processed food. Yeah. So kind of separate to sugar impacting our weight, which like you said, it only impacts our weight because it is so highly palatable and you end up consuming so much more of it. Um, I wanted to ask what your um, what your knowledge is on how sugar is impacting the rise of type 2 diabetes because I think especially in Australia I read some statistic like it's nearly like 30 percent or something like that and in America it's like nearly 50 percent of America's um, population has type 2 diabetes so you know what impact does sugar have on our insulin and what does that insulin how does that impact um, the rise of you know type 2 diabetes like what's the mechanism behind that? 
So, so the main mechanism with type 2 diabetes is that the a high-sugar diet will be contributing to weight gain. And once you've got the increase in weight gain, you'll start right. seeing factors of insulin resistance, hyperinsulinemia, and so on. So it's all related uh, together. So diets that are going to be high in sugar will be more processed, and that is part of a lifestyle that will be linked with weight gain. And then with the weight gain is the risk of type mm-hmm. 2 diabetes. The, the, the strongest link between mm-hmm. sugar and weight gain, though, is from soft drinks, sugar-sweetened beverages. There's a really strong link between those drinks and the risk of diabetes and weight. Mm-hmm. That's the strongest one. And the reason is thought because it's in a liquid form, we can consume quite a lot of it mm-hmm. without getting that feeling of fullness and satiety that we get from eating whole food. So there's something more insidious yeah. about soft drinks compared to other sources of sugar in our mm-hmm. diet, and they're the ones most linked to type 2 diabetes. That makes sense. So how does it, how does sugar, you know, obviously get processed in the body? So it goes in and then if we have excess sugar, the excess sugar leads to weight gain. But in terms of like the insulin, don't we need to turn it into like glucose or something like that? Yes, <laughs> like you turn it into glucose, but if you can't convert it into glucose, it's like causes a high blood sugar. Is that correct? That's sort of how it goes. So if you're producing, if you've got a huge amount of extra <laughs> glucose or, or carbohydrate, uh, not all of that will be converted in, or stored as, as carbohydrate. Some of it will be converted to fat, particularly the, the fructose component mm-hmm. of sugar. So sugar is, is a glucose and a fructose joined together. The fructose goes straight to the liver and that can certainly increase um, triglyceride production from the liver. So that's where it's thought the link between sugar and weight gain lies the most. But none of that occurs if you don't have an energy excess. So soft drinks okay. and added sugar adds to the diet to put you in that state of energy excess. And that energy excess results in weight gain and the problems that we see. That makes sense, yeah. Okay, very interesting. Isn't that a crazy kind of statistic to think that nearly 50% of Americans are struggling with type 2 diabetes but in the same breath it, it makes sense i guess um yeah our diets are like very processed aren't they 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 are and australia is not too far behind i haven't looked at the re- most recent stats but i've certainly seen numbers of uh one in four australians either have type 2 diabetes or pre-diabetes so high risk of development mm. and mm. most of that is related to lifestyle physical inactivity and an excess weight and, and our diet has the biggest impact upon yeah that excess weight and added sugars is certainly one of the culprits for that yeah yeah again i want to touch on coffee consumption with you um well, coffee has happy been demonized <laughs> and every time i read yeah oh yeah you know what every time i read an article and they're like coffee is bad for you i'm like i i can't read this i refuse to read this yeah, i exactly. think i guess i wouldn't say i have a coffee addiction i I would say I'm dependent on it. And, you know, there's a difference. A I thoroughly, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I thoroughly enjoy my coffee. And anyone who says, you know, don't drink it, I'm like, you're going to ruin my morning. Leave me alone. So I want to know what your take is on coffee consumption and particularly what impact this has on potentially our adrenals and can it cause adrenal fatigue? Is that a real thing? Um, yeah, what's your take? So this is going to make you very happy, Marissa. The, the, the evidence about coffee is pretty strong. It is, it is good for you. I'd put it almost to, to the level of a, of a health food. Okay. There is a lot of Stop evidence. Stop it. Yes. I'm going to, I'm going to call it. There is, you see a lower risk good. of type 2 diabetes. You see a decreased risk of, of Parkinson's. 
you see coffee drinkers have longer lives, you see a lower risk of, of heart disease, you see a lower risk of depression. These are not single isolated studies. These are dozens upon dozens of studies, all showing a similar to narrative that at a, at a moderate level of coffee consumption, and here it's three to four cups a day is what's considered moderate. That's good news. Wow. The evidence is far in favor of coffee, be it from the caffeine or other beneficial compounds found in coffee, and there's loads of antioxidants in it, having a beneficial effect. And then you have its benefit in sport. It is it is a group A sports supplement, perfectly legal, that does improve endurance in sports performance because of the effect of caffeine Absolutely. on um, perception of fatigue and effort. It, it, there's strong evidence it will help with sport. All of that together shows that you should mm-hmm. enjoy your coffee for what it is and not feel guilty about it. But I will throw yeah. a few little disclaimers. I love it. Of course. Um, if you don't drink a lot of coffee, you'll, <laughs> obviously it's a stimulant. Uh, it makes you alert. So insomnia can be a problem, but if it's not a problem for you, mm-hmm. keep enjoying it. The only real serious mm. risk group is is women who are pregnant. Uh, there are strong recommendations to consume less than 200 milligrams of caffeine per day. That's about two strong cups of coffee. It is linked with miscarriage. Mm-hmm. That's about the only group that you oh, really caution to not drink a lot of coffee. For everybody else, three mm-hmm. to four cups a day, enjoy it. And all of that stuff you read about it being dehydrating is not true. The thing is with caffeine or coffee, what's the main ingredient? It's water. You actually consume more water than you lose. And when you drink coffee regularly, you're right. used to the caffeine and it's actually positive for your fluid balance. It's not as a strong diuretic. We actually get used to it. So it's all good news. Uh, I always say to people, drink coffee. This is amazing coffee, news. Lots of benefit. And this is this is not paid for by the Australian yeah, amazing. consumption either. So this is all my interpretation. <laughs> And yeah, love drinkers, it. Love to hear it. No, yeah. For tea drinkers, also the evidence is pretty good as well. So if you don't like coffee, drink tea. That's going to be good for you. Yeah, like your green tea or or whatever. But you know, it's like I feel like anything that's like worth enjoying, someone will always come out with an article and they'll say, "No, it's actually horrible for you." There's always a party pooper. So yeah. <laughs> I'm really happy to hear that. You will see that. Look, if you go looking for it, you can find some negative research on it. Uh, the, the amount of positive research is far, far in excess of it. So, look, I like coffee. I enjoy it. And there's pretty good reasons it's going to be doing your health, the world of good, having your three to four cups per day. Oh, I love to and hear it. a few it. exceptions. What's your take? Does it yep. – yeah, so pregnant people and, and things like that. What's your take on um, – does it impact adrenal fatigue? Because obviously when you drink coffee, it causes that increase in energy and your yeah. – does it, it can raise your cortisol levels, I guess, temporarily. So yes. I think there's been a lot of talk out there that it increases your cortisol. That can make your body think that it's under, you know, a large amount of stress consistently. But I think in my mind, I always think, and this is literally just my opinion, so I, I want to hear your take on it, but isn't the body a little bit more intelligent than that? Or does it just take the coffee stimulant as it being under a lot of stress and it can cause long-term um, health yep. issues from the stress. Our body is very smart. Um, our adrenal glands don't fatigue. They don't wear out. Uh, there are medical conditions that, that can cause problems, but it's adrenal fatigue is not a real thing. It's, sort of, it's a shopping list of specific symptoms that people can go on the internet and then diagnose themselves with adrenal fatigue, but they don't wear out. Unless you have an endocrine condition, 
um, specific one that does affect uh, adrenal function, but that's not related to diet and lifestyle. So overall, it's not a thing. What it is is just a marker for a poor diet and lifestyle, the people that diagnose themselves with it. So enjoy it. Coffee is not going to wear your adrenals out. And I've already outlined all the positive health benefits that come from it. That's great. That's great news. Best news I've heard all all month, dare I say. That's awesome. Good to hear that. Um, now, I guess on the topic of kind of caffeine and you mentioned a little bit of insomnia, what foods or supplements would you recommend for people to get a better sleep? Um, because sleep, correct me if I'm wrong, is kind of one of the biggest impacts on our overall health. If you're not sleeping right, there's a lot of things that aren't going right. What's your take? Oh, look, first of all, it's it's massive. Like poor sleep, particularly if you're seeing it in shift workers, is linked with a whole host of, of, of diseases, metabolic disease and weight gain because of those hormonal changes. So you know, one of the pillars of a healthy lifestyle is going to be diet, exercise and sleep. If you've got those three right, you're winning at mm-hmm. life, seriously. And, and sleep is a core one. Yeah, I love it. Um, so... Yeah. Okay, so, so, and I'd be interested to hear your take on this as well. So, the, the popular ones that are out there are melatonin, magnesium, lavender, mm-hmm. valerian root, uh, L-theanine, which you'll find in tea, and chamomile. They're probably the main ones I come across. Yeah. Probably melatonin that has mm-hmm. the most reasonable level of evidence. Magnesium, maybe, maybe not. Mm-hmm. And the others, potentially, there's a bit of evidence. But I always say, if you have insomnia and you believe you're taking one of these supplements that it's going to put you to sleep and you believe that and it does, well, who cares what clinical trials say if it works for you? <laughs> so I don't go into debates about what's good. Yeah, yeah, maybe. yeah. <laughs> maybe magnesium and you could try the other herbals if you like. And if they were, if you feel that it's doing you good, well, guess what's going to happen? Your brain's going to shut down and you're going to relax and you're going to fall asleep. So I want absolutely why overcomplicate like, it. Whatever works, be open to different things. Um, ignore the evidence; it can be mm-hmm. quite mixed, but none of it's saying that it's <laughs> not going to work. It could work for you. What's your take on it, Marissa? Yeah. What's your understanding? So I take car, uh, like a um, magnesium before bed, which yep. helps with just like I, I do feel relaxed from it. It helps me feel relaxed. And I also take a supplement called um, Neurocarm, which just helps me kind of like chill out a little bit it's just a herbal supplement um i can't even tell you what's in it but it like you say it feels right so i keep taking it so i feel relaxed before bed the thing i have i used to take melatonin but i heard um there was this study i don't know if you're familiar with dr andrew huberman he has um, he's like a professor at his content yeah yeah so he he was talking about how melatonin can actually um They've done studies in animals where they show that it actually shuts down. It pretty much like puts you into hibernation. They say more melatonin means that your body thinks it's kind of in this hibernation phase. And then that can impact your um, like your ability to like reproduce and stuff like that. Like it makes you think that it's like, yeah, it's not good for um, your sexual organs or something like that. That's what he said, um, which I guess what he was saying kind of made sense. He, he was saying you could take it like occasionally, but consistently taking melatonin can really like suppress things yeah. too much. But I think you'd have to be taking a really high dose, you know. I, w- I would agree with his assessment that melatonin is a critical hormone to do with our sleep-wake wake cycle as well as a whole lot of other factors. So you don't want to be messing with it too much by mm. it all the time. 
if you're dealing with acute insomnia, yeah. you know, go for the melatonin. But I would agree it's not something you want to take all the time because it is it is a, a yeah. hormone that you naturally produce. You're actually messing with that system. So, yeah, it's not to use all the time, whereas magnesium, yeah. that's pretty uh, pretty safe and harmless stuff to take. It's not going to do you much harm to try magnesium. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, interesting. That's good. That's um, it's good to hear that. Yeah, it's a sleep wake cycle. That's what he was talking about. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. I guess you can play around with supplements. That's the beauty of them. But it's always like we were saying, it's good to be informed about you know what you're taking. You can maybe yeah. buy with a bit more an informed point of view. Um, that's covered so much of what I wanted to chat about today. I guess maybe to close off, what's your overall diet advice for? the masses if you're to give you know um your take on nutrition do you have a quite a simple approach to nutrition do you um or do you have certain things that you think everyone should be doing not doing um what do you usually recommend to client people excellent that's a really nice way to finish up today marissa so this is coming from someone who's been Mm. in business for over 30 years um, and obviously in all sorts of conditions and Mm -hmm. diets come and go and yet they all seem to point yeah. back to the same advice. Whether you're talking about skin health, gut health, inflammation, um, reducing the risk of chronic disease, just being healthy, the dietary recommendations all seem to say a similar thing. It's a diversity of foods, mm-hmm. mostly plants. I am not um, fanatical either way about if you are vegetarian or not, You know, whatever works for you, whatever you're happy with. But if your diet is mostly plants, you're doing well. And mostly in a form that's not too different from how they're growing. And what that is a marker for is they'll contain lots of Mm -hmm. vitamins, minerals, and probiotics. So plenty of whole grains, fruit, Mm -hmm. legumes, vegetables. And if you you choose to have dairy, make some of it fermented because of the probiotic benefits. If you get that bit right, forget Mm -hmm. about heroing superfoods or banning or demonizing a little bit of sugar. That's pretty irrelevant. That is the yeah. core of a healthy diet yeah. that is unchanged for decades and that will improve your gut health, it will improve your skin health, it will do all sorts of amazing things for you, it will improve your mental health as well. And you can choose whatever particular mm-hmm. foods are in it. There's no one magical fruit or vegetable. They are all good for you to an extent. So don't get hung up on just getting the, the specifics right. Get the core of your diet right and that mm-hmm. is 80% of the battle. Yeah, that's amazing. That's really good advice. And I love to hear it because at the end of the day, nutrition, the basis of it, like you say, a lot of it's unchanged, you know, different articles will come out, different takes will come out. But the basis is what you can't argue with is eat your fruits and eat your vegetables and sleep right. And, you know, it's quite simple, isn't it? You know what? It's simple advice, but also it's hard to implement in our modern society when you're surrounded by junk food ads and and Mm an environment designed to make us inactive, but it doesn't change the fact that that's where the best yeah. benefits lie. And why it's great to talk about skin health, mental health, gut health, is that they're really interesting, sexy topics to mm. talk about. And if that is enough to, for people to make a yeah. positive dietary change, then that's fantastic. I couldn't care less that the dietary advice is what we've recommended for decades. I don't care. It's if you're motivated, yeah. those changes, <laughs> then that's a good thing. And when you make the changes, guess what happens? You feel better, your mental health improves, and you're more likely to sustain that. 
Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. Really, really good information and, and really valid points. And um, it's been great having you on. You've shared so much information. I'm really grateful. How can people find you? You have your own podcast. It's Thinking Nutritionally. Is that correct? That's right. Thinking Nutrition is my nutrition podcast. I've been doing that for about two years. Pretty much everything I've spoken about today, you'll find a podcast episode on it from coffee to adrenal fatigue to gut health to depression uh, and it ranks it's in the top 10 nutrition podcasts in australia so that's my main communication channel otherwise my website uh thinking awesome. and if you go there you'll be able to get into my facebook and um instagram and all those socials as well through my website or just through my podcast uh, and it's all freely available i'm not promoting that's awesome. products, supplements books or anything like that there's no dr tim special blend health tonic or diet uh, <laughs> i'm all about the nutritional side so you yeah. can take what works for you discard the rest and if it makes your health better that's all i care about yeah that's amazing i guess for anyone who's listening who wants to elaborate on any of these topics or wants to get in touch with dr tim um feel free to do so i'm going to link all of your stuff down below awesome. um you. but yeah thank you so much for coming on i really appreciate it been great chatting with you today